Hey, welcome back, everyone. Um, my name's Bruce. Sam introduced me briefly earlier on. I'm the curator here. I'm maternity cover for Sarah Pearson, who I'm sure a lot more of you know. Um, I hope everyone had a good lunch and got a chance to see uh, Designing Bodies after Liz's fantastic introduction to it this morning. Um, I also hope everyone got a chance to go and get more sort of involved in a tactile way with the materials that we've been discussing this morning. I thought that was great, and thanks to... <laughs> I do know everyone really well. <laughs> I'm not like just trying to, just not thinking on the hoof on a maternity cover or anything. But thanks very much for giving us the opportunity to yeah get involved with some of those materials in the way that sort of Liz was describing earlier on. Um, our first speaker of the afternoon is Miranda Lowe, who's a museum scientist and collections manager for invertebrates at the Natural History Museum. Cool. Who looks after some very historically significant uh, specimens, including Darwin's barnacles. Um, and she's also contributed to a soon forthcoming book uh, that's a spin-off from the Radio 4 uh, series, Natural Histories. And she's going to speak to us just now about the glass models of Leopold and Rudolf Blaschka. Okay, thank you. Hi. Right. So, when uh, Philip Henry Goss uh, published his uh, book in 1860 on sea um, uh, and enemies around the British coast, and also um, his work and publications on aquarium um, in, in London, and in fact, um, I think he was involved in, well, I know London Zoo um, had the first uh, aquarium installed at London Zoo. Um, the uh, Victorians uh, spent most of their time, because of Philip Henry Goss's work, um, around the coast with their bums in the air, essentially. Um, so uh, because of Henry Goss, um, he's known as the uh, godfather of the aquarium, started the aquarium craze. The Victorians were, those that were lucky enough and rich enough, were going um, rock pooling and trying to observe the sea creatures such as sea anemones um, along the British coast. And um, so that's great, collecting um, specimens like that. Um, but... Most of the time, you cannot, um, once you collect them, you cannot preserve them very well or keep their colour, um, shape and form. And because of that, then these two guys here, so Leopold and Rudolf Blaschka, a father and son team, decided to make um, sea creatures out of glass to um, preserve the colour, shape and form of these sea creatures and allow a lot more people who weren't able to go to the British coast or go on cruises exploring the world's oceans to allow them to be able to see what these mysterious creatures in the oceans actually looked like. Uh, Leopold Blaschke was, was the father and um, he essentially had two bereavements in quick succession um, originally, uh, they are from Bohemia, and then la later the family moved to Dresden. But for Leopold, after those two bereavements, he went on um, a scient scientific uh, trip expedition um, where he had to cross the, the, um, the oceans um, of the Azores. And on that trip, he was observing things like jellyfish and was also thinking, well, what if I could preserve the, the kind of fragility, the shape and form and the colours of these sea creatures in glass? Now, he came from a family that um, were well known for making um, objects out of glass, glass eyes for taxidermy, um, 
uh, uh, costume jewellery and things like that. So we he had a rel had God, I can't get the word that this afternoon. I promise I wasn't I haven't been drinking, um, just water only. Um, so he had the skills to um, then start making these sea creatures out of glass and by working in the family business. His son joined him a bit later on um, in the business. And as as I go through this presentation, you'll see the uh, the, the models are quite crude to start off with, but then they develop in uh, I shouldn't choose long, hard words, in complexity um, and, and colour variation. That's due to his son joining the business when he was about um, uh, 18 years old because he was then encouraging his father to experiment with pigments. Um, so as I was explaining just a little bit before, so these are some jellyfish, and uh, these, for, uh, these are from a collection that I look after. Now, there is a little bit of colour in the jellyfish here, but as you can see, for um, the one in the middle is a Portuguese man-of-war, and it's usually got um, blue tinges on its tentacles and on the, the float or the bell of the jellyfish on the crest at the top. Um, all the jellyfish that are keep at the museum, they're preserved in formaldehyde. And essentially, that preservation fluid and um, the other parts of the collection that we, that the majority of my collections are preserved in 80% ethanol, they all tend to lose some kind of colour. I have noticed in certain sea creatures like crabs, they tend to preserve the, the reds and um, blues and purples. But that, again, is just, I think, to do with the, the hard outer surface and structure. But gelatinous creatures generally don't are not keeping their colour. So this is where the Blaschka's work came in. So the Blaschka's uh, worked... So when they, they moved to Dresden, um, Leopold married again, and in their house in Dresden, the father and son team worked in, a, in their studio, which essentially was their, their, one of their rooms in the house, working on a lamp-working table. Some of you may know a lot more about lamp-working than me, but I've learnt because of my passion for these <laughs> objects. Um, so this is one of them. They had a table each working opposite each other. This is a picture of one that is uh, currently housed at um, Harvard, um, the Museum of Comparative Anatomy. Um, the other lamp working table is at Corning Museum of Glass, again in, in the United States. Um, it has, um, uh, under, under the table, has a foot pump, a bellows to produce the hot air, and oh, you can just about see it in the top. Does, does this have a little thing that you press? Oh, no. But anyway, at the top of the table near the pestle and mortar, there's something like a Bunsen burner, and there are various tools that they use to make the various shapes and forms of um, things like the jellyfish, squid, and octopus that you see later, and, and bits of coloured glass there. And there's also a business card for Leopold um, on the top of the table. Yeah, you can see it much more clearly here. So all the different types of glass and tools and, and so forth. So this just gives you a summary of the Blaschka collections at the Natural History Museum. So the, the reason why these models were made, as I said in the beginning, because they don't keep these gelatinous um, sea creatures, don't keep shape, form or colour. But they were also, these models were created as teaching models. So there are extensive collections up and down this country of Blaschka models. Um, the biggest collection um, in, in Europe um, is at the um, Natural History Museum in Dublin. I think they have four to 500 models. They have been lucky that since, since they purchased their models in 1879, they've always had them on display in some shape 
perform alongside real specimens. And that's what a lot of museums and teaching colleges did in the, in the very beginning, display them alongside real specimens so that members of the public can see them. Um, there, uh, there's um, a lady here from, from Cardiff, uh, Natural History Museum there. They, they've got collections as well. Um, and there are some housed in the archives at Imperial College as well, and they were used extensively in hands-on teaching. And uh, when, when you see what the models look like, you sort of think, oh, gosh, they look really fragile. How could you let students? <laughs> um, they, but they, they were used extensively. And at that point in time when Imperial College had their models, that's around sort of 1874, um, uh, that there was an art and biology um, section, so you can kind of see where those models... But now they've been just uh, shoved away in a paper archive, funnily enough, but um, I promise to help them out there. Um, so, again, these are the sea anemones that the Victorians were very passionate about, and Leopold and Rudolf Blaschke wanted to recreate exactly um, their teaching models um, so that people could use them and get a feel for what these creatures looked like around the coast and in the deep ocean. Um, and as you can see, they're very pretty. They're often known as flowers of the ocean and things like that. And they have common names like strawberry anemone, pimplant anemone, and, and so forth. The Blaschkas um, try to keep jellyfish and sea anemone in the tanks um, in their studio so that they could observe how these um, sea creatures sort of lived um, so that they could... Um, produce them exactly out of glass but the thing with um, jellyfish in particular they're um, very fussy about the salinity of of, of their environment of, of the water conditions of the water so they weren't that successful but they were successful in keeping sea anemones and because of um, Henry Goss who was a British scientist who wrote um, a big book a monograph about um, anemones of the British coast they, the Blaschkas actually sourced British sea anemones from a chap um, in their archives that they document as um, uh, Mr. Smith of Weymouth. And they document that it took three days from um, Weymouth to Dresden, uh, these sea anemones sort of parceled up in moist, wet tissue through the postal system. So... At uh, the Natural History Museum, we have um, some of the earliest, if not the earliest, models that they ever made. We have, a we have 86 um, sea anemones, uh, if I've added it all up correctly, but there's a duplicate set of 13 that were purchased by a chap called Ro Reverend Robert Hudson. And it seems, I'm still trying to um, find some details on, on this chap, but it seems that there's a letter at Harvard um, that I've been lucky enough to see where they talk about an English gentleman asking them to make sea anemones for him. So he was um, one of many private collectors and we somehow, have, he donated that collection to us, so we're quite lucky. And I think, I hope I'm not announcing too soon, but that might be the earliest surviving set of their work in the world because they made the sea anemones first. But they're documented of um, being registered in our collections in 1865, 1866. Um, so this is um, a, a plate, an illustration from uh, Henry Goss's uh, monographs on sea anemones, and the Blaschkas copied those exactly. They even copied, they did their own uh, paintings and illustrations from this book to create the sea anemones. So you can match your collection exactly to this scientific work. So this is what um, our sea anemones look like. Um, they're all on these boards, and um, the uh, 
glass uh, anemone, the body of the anemone is made in glass, actually sits on a plaster base that's been painted to uh, recreate a kind of rocky shore um, sort of environment. And uh, the tentacles are glass, but they are, the, the, the glass is coated over um, copper wire. So um, within that, then they're stuck inside. So they've usually used animal glues. And because of the age of some of these um, models, um, those glues have gone brittle. And so you, you've found that um, you've got detached parts of, of, um, of models. And I was talking to the lady from Cardiff earlier on, and I said, oh, none of mine have cracked so much that I can see inside. And she said, oh, we've got some at Cardiff. And you can see there's like a big roll of card inside and so forth. And even though it might seem a complete disaster that they cracked, it actually reveals information about how they were made and constructed because the Blashkas did not employ anybody else to work with them. And so essentially their secrets died with them, in particular with the sea creatures. I'll go on to talk about um, glass flowers a bit later on, but for the sea creatures, their secrets died with them. So I've been working with people at the museum analysing fragments of glass and we've got a paper coming out and talking about what kind of pigments and were they consistent in their recipes. Turns out not, everything is individual. <laughs> um, um, so, it, But it's still quite interesting. So there's, there's another one here. And uh, what's interesting about this model is that you can tell the early sets of, of um, sea anemones to the later ones of the same kind of species of models that they made to others. So this is an early set one because it has painted spots on the sea anemone. As they develop their techniques, that same sea anemone, if it was ordered, there are some in Australian museums. So this one in Australian museum has um, uh, white uh, glass as spots. So the early sets were just painted, and then later on they put glass and spots on the anemones. It's another one, strawberry anemone here. That's uh, another one. There's quite a few here. So then in 1876, we acquired um, sea slugs, jellyfish, and corals. Um, so these are some beautiful sea slugs. We have about 40 of these, and they're only... Um, uh, about three centimetres long, um, but I think in Cardiff, some of them are, are much larger. Um, but I think, uh, where is she? Anyway, um, oh yeah, there you are. <laughs> what size are your sea, um, your sea sl they, They're large though, aren't they? Yeah, and I couldn't find out where, sorry, we should leave that till later anyway. <laughs> but they're large. <laughs> um, What's great about this, um, this picture, is because they're quite small, I mean, you can look at them under a microscope, they have suffered from glass deterioration. And um, I should say, I'm a marine biologist by in heart, but I've um, got a passion for glass and um, deterioration of glass and paints and pigments now because of this. So I've been studying the Blaschkas for about uh, 12, 15 years now. Um, there's delaminated, th so the top picture, you can see this kind of flaking of pigments and things, and um, that's the glass kind of delaminating. Um, and there's also another form of crizzling, kind of like cloudy white um, uh, precipitation happening with glass. So this, this kind of um, picture and documentation, when you magnify it, can also reveal um, what's missing, what's happening to um, materials like this. So at the museum, we've realised that, and they've done pretty well. I mean, these were made in 1876, but we are trying to keep um, these models in... Um, 
in stable environments and we've gone through a, a reboxing program as well because I, I found them in boxes with a very acidic uh, newspaper from the 70s and even earlier and boxes and so forth so um, we've we've done a lot of that in a separate projects um, it's a lovely picture of a Horniman Museum uh, jellyfish that I took a while ago but again look at that growth and beauty and this is what they try to create in uh, the models that they're made of sea anemones. These are only about 19 centimetres high, um, but um, it's just remarkable. And you can see that how they're progressing in the complexity of the animals that they try to recreate. So we've got a moon jellyfish over there, common moon jellyfish, which you can find across in the British coast there. So the one Aurelia orata. Um, and when you look at the top, and I, unfortunately I didn't put a photograph in, but when you look at the top, the jellyfish from above, you can see um, uh, there are four gonads, the sexual parts of the jellyfish, you can see those, and they're all anatomically correct, and it's pretty amazing that they could create this uh, jellyfish bell, and from the underside it seems to be sealed with, with gl inverted glass as well, and hang the tentacles, very accurate. You can see that the colours on them there are really beautiful. Um, and <laughs> I found out only a couple of years ago, and I've been handling them 10 years prior, that the, um, the metal armatures there, so the rods going down, are not glued into those boards whatsoever. And they're only less than a millimetre in there. And, and um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but again, and I know a lot of you work with different types of media, you know, wax and so forth. These look really fragile. They kind of are, but not as fragile. Like when you learn um, what you're handling, um, you know, the way they move and, and things like that, you can be sure that they, they, they're quite tough. And as I say, they've lasted a very long time. Uh, one of my favourites here, a Portuguese man of war. So the one I showed you in the glass jar, the preservation, you can see there's a blue crest on, on that and blue tentacles with um, the red parts there are stinging cells on the jellyfish as well. And um, this one with kind of banana-shaped kind of orange things extending off and it's got um, a series of floats or bells and then it's got this big mass of things with little nodules on. Well, this is a siphonophore. It's related to jellyfish here. And it's known as the longest trailing animal in the world, in the world's oceans. And um, so the, this mass of tentacles often stinging their prey like small fish and so forth. But again, you know, the, if you look at it, you know, the complexity of attaching all these parts. Um, and it seems that they made the individual parts, um, you know, that had a batch of, say, tentacles that looked like one thing and then pieced them together. So what I should say that um, they had agents working for them um, to sell uh, their models. So the agent for the UK and Ireland was um, Robert Damon, who was a fossil hunter. And he was buying, buying, selling fossils. So you'd think naturally he's the, the person that they need on board for that. They had a catalogue. <coughs> Um, where they sold um, them for, well, the American catalogue was just a couple of dollars. It's a couple of cents to the most expensive uh, was a, a glass sponge model, which we we have communications that the the, the 
the Natural History Museum had um, written a letter to the Blashkas to get that made, but we can't find that, and it's not documented that it was sent and made. But that was the most expensive of about five or six dollars. So um, now we sort of think that might be cheap, but if you scale it up to that point in time, maybe it was a little bit more expensive to pay for this. But they didn't do it for the money. It's purely because they loved... Um, natural history, the world's oceans, they wanted to share that with other people and, and then this production of their models um, were used for teaching people about the natural world and the world's oceans. In America, they had a chap called um, Henry Ward who was their agent and he owned a scientific equipment company. So again, it was a natural place to um, sell their wares. All right, so um, the one that says NHM coral um, model, Corolium rubrin, so that's the Blaschka model there. The other one with um, a, a kind of bigger piece, the other picture, is again a Blaschka model, but it's from... Somebody sent me this picture. I think it's from the museum in Pisa. They've got some models. Now, I've got this because it shows what my model should have another piece, that kind of segment there, and it actually doesn't, and it would once have been on a stand. But what the Blaschkas were showing here... This in, in, in life, this um, coral, is a semi-precious red coral, so um, it's illegal to um, collect this coral now, but the Victorians made, well, I do have in my possession at the museum, a beautiful tiara, um, so the coral's been polished up, so they made jewellery out of this red coral, so I've got a tiara from um, 1860s that I'm doing some research on with the V&A. Um, so this piece of coral, they've um, shown you what it would look like when you dissect it, so it has a cut at the bottom base of the stem, and then you can see these clear white extensions um, sort of hanging off it. And um, in life, that's the coral polyps. So those are the feeding organisms. So essentially, they're like small sea anemones that hang off um, the, the, the corals, what the corals comprised of. So the feeding organisms of it there. And you can see, although it's a little bit dirty, when, when you examine this model close up, it has ground... Um, pieces of, of glass on it too. So they're re recreating the texture, not only the colour, but the texture and surface texture of, of, of an animal. So in 1883, we had squid and octopus. So here you can see um, a squid and um, from the Blaschka archives, which are based at Corning Museum of Glass in, in their library, um, I was allowed to um, have access to the Blaschkas doing their own illustrations there. So alongside it, which is really beautiful. So they were great artists in their own right, in many ways, <laughs> in illustrations and also creating um, works of art in glass. And then we have another one here. Each uh, model in their catalogue had a specific catalogue number. Um, and we tend to call them ward numbers now because people use, even though they had um, catalogues in German, uh, I'm not so proficient in uh, translating German, but we... Uh, us, uh, most of us in the Blaschka community tend to use as a reference the ward catalogues, so the American catalogues, which have the ward numbers in for each specimen. And uh, a beautiful octopus. And then this is their pièce de résistance, should I say. In 1889, um, they created very microscopical creatures called Prasista, um, which consist of heliozoans, radiolarians, and amoeba. And you can see from this, 
Um, uh, it's just utterly amazing. I, every time I look at um, uh, these models, the complexity, the, the, even the mathematics going into creating um, two... So this model here, this is a heliozoan. It's got um, two uh, spheres inside that are coloured slightly green. And then it, uh, you have an outer matrix with all these holes and then extending out of these holes all these spines. And, I mean, they survived really well. Um, to think they had to go from Dresden to the UK as well. And um, I'll say I was discussing with my um, uh, other kind of co a colleague that, that is based at Cardiff. Um, I was asking her how they um, package these kind of models because people are now asking for them um, uh, for exhibitions further afield. So Cardiff have got a, a history in the last over 10 years or more that they've um, allowed their models to tour Europe, but the NHM have been very sort of... Uh, Okay, I didn't want to do it, even when I wanted to. Um, but uh, So we're going to have a treasures touring exhibition, which might include some of these blashkas. So. Um, there you can see beautiful illustrations, again, linking into the model. And unfortunately, it's not on the top of this one. But on the top there, you can see there's a ward number, which says N636, which relates to the catalogue and the pricing. Um, but on another bit of paperwork, they actually say how much they've magnified this by. So it's by 500 and 1,000 times. So these are really microscopical animals in the ocean. And what they've recreated out of glass actually is the skeleton of these animals, which is pretty amazing. So these are some amoeba, amoebae. And you might all remember them from biology classes. They talk about single-celled animals. And this is another, uh, this is a testate amoebae. And um, when you hold it up to the light, it's got an internal structure. And um, in real life, it has all this encrusting stuff around it. And they've used broken glass here. These are amazing, too. <laughs> We've got um, one of these on display in our treasures exhibition at the museum. Again, this is a radiolarian. And um, I mean, the photo does it some kind of justice. But it, just to see them close up and the complexity um, and uh, because the glue is, is, is old now, you can see those brown spots of the animal glue. And that's a, a beautiful one here. Another one. Um, so we've had various uh, conservation students. Um, do, well, this is a picture of Lisa Sturt. She did her master's dissertation on two of our models, developing cleaning techniques and examining the models themselves. So some of uh, these um, spiny models actually have hollow tubes of glass, some... some um, uh, some of the tips are hollow and sealed and some aren't and then some are, uh, are wire coated with glass and so forth. So that's some of the micro tools of her cleaning. She actually won a conservation award that we both went to collect at the Wedgwood Museum about five years ago. And, oh, is it timed me out? Right, so I'll just show you quickly. Um, so when the Blaschkas uh, finished uh, making those models in 1889, they were enticed by Harvard and by um, a mother and daughter called Elizabeth and Mary Ware. They were philanthropists and associated to Harvard, and so they had a lot of money, and they persuaded the Blaschkas to stop making... Um, sea creatures and just make glass flowers specifically for Harvard for 10 years. So Harvard is the only museum in the world that has glass flowers. So I'll just quickly... Oh, that's some of their marine invertebrates they got here. But um, there we go. So that's what the gallery looks like, but it's closed now and it will open... It closed in November, it will open in May. 
um, and it's just stunning, but everything is glass. So these are some pictures I took in 2012, and I took them through the glass case, so um, I'm still amazed that they're, they're all glass. A glass banana. <laughs> and these were used extensively in teaching, so that is documented, and there's a little bit of documentation of how they made the flowers more than the, the um, sea creatures, which we're trying to use that evidence to uh, cross-reference. Maple leaves. Um, so Rudolph the son, he, he documents that he was not happy until the 10th year in getting the pigment, red pigment, correct for the maple leaves. That's how much perfectionists they were, and because these were being used in teaching. That is a beautiful picture. I'm amazed I took it myself, sorry. <laughs> and uh, because when I look at it as well, it looks like a real flower, actually, <laughs> and it's glass. And I know it's glass because I went there to, but it's beautiful, absolutely stunning. And, and then this is um, some artwork, and I didn't put the artist up then, I can't remember who she is. It's a she, anyway. Um, so this is at the Corning Museum of Glass, so there are various people who've been inspired by the Blaschke's work. And that's uh, probably about a metre. It's quite big, uh, two metres long. Right, OK. Thank you, Miranda. That was absolutely amazing. Um, one of my colleagues had mentioned mm -hmm. that the, the models were very, very beautiful, but I didn't really appreciate <laughs> quite stunning. how beautiful. Mm. They were, like, stunning. Absolutely stunning. Um, we've got a couple of minutes for questions for Miranda, if anyone has any questions. Crizzling, yes. C-R-I-Z-Z. Yes, something like that. Anyway, crizzling. I've got a whole chart to compare things to that has images of different deterioration in glass and the names for it, yeah. And I've got the concise encyclopedia on glass as well. <laughs> Could go on, but yes, crizzling. Mm. Sorry, Claire at the back. Um, how many of the glass that you get on display? Not enough. <laughs> uh, yes, so we have a treasures gallery of 22 treasures across the museum. There's one case with three Blaschka models in. Uh, that gallery opened in 2012. I've spent the um, best part of 10 years trying to even get that far. What happened in 2007, I managed to take 40 models, get permission to take 40 models up to um, Sunderland um, to the National Glass Centre um, where they were having contemporary artists inspired by Blaschka showing their works and 40 of our models and a few from the Hancock Museum in Newcastle. And uh, it was... It, I, I, I cried so many times trying to get the authorization, but I was really passionate because I'd seen these things. People, these things were all over the place in the museum, and um, I came across them because I was doing some documentation for a, a new building which we have now, the Darwin Centre. But investigated them and became, you know, about them and became quite passionate. But the museum, um, it didn't fit into their exhibition programme at that time. It only just does now. I'm trying to incorporate it into future temporary exhibitions now because, you know, they still, uh, they have that fine line, you know, science and art. But, you know, originally that's what they were made, made for, to teach people, you know, about these sea creatures alongside real specimens. So I may get a few of these specimens in a temporary exhibition that's going to happen two years from now called Venom. Um, and so forth. So I'm trying to incorporate them in, in that way. Yeah, but I would love a whole gallery, the whole Treasures Gallery, if next time you visit the museum. Could have all Blaschkas in there. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Yes. Um, unfortunately, I didn't bring it today. I'm going to explain to someone else. Um, so there's a glass artist, uh, an Australian glass artist called Mark Elliott, and I did commission him last year to make um, one of the an octopus that you saw there for me. I didn't bring it along. I just thought it was too too much hassle because I've got some other books for people to have a look at a bit later on. Um, so Mark has come quite close. The um, octopus that I've got, though, is too shiny um, because the Blaschka octopus is kind of matted and has ground glass on But he's come quite close. And I've, I've been talking to someone at Corning Museum of Glass and there's someone, I think, that, he, that another chap said in Vienna that does glass beetles or something, that his work has been observed and could be as close, you know, in modern-day sense as Blaschka's. But I've had so many people come visit the collect glass artists behind the scenes and... Uh, um, no one's come up with anything that, uh, yet as good as. I could be biased, so. Anyone else? Yeah. Hi, Jack. Yeah. Uh, well, um, there, you know, I haven't, and because their archives are all written in, in you know, German and, and things, and there's one guy who's passionate about Blaschkas, um, who's from Utrecht, that tries to translate ever so often. But I've been told by him that there was an element of using sort of like sawdust and, and things like that for packing. And there were, I, I'm not sure, Annette, you could probably say anything. There was rumours that, um, you know, from the airport that these things were transported in, in, in funeral cars because they drive really... I don't know, that's just a rumour. But um, I've not seen anything written down. It's just been word of mouth, Jack. So we try our best in what we're, <laughs> we're doing. But I don't think we can do any worse if we've got all this technology and different packing materials and so forth. So I don't think we can do it. Yeah, don't I'm, be worried. <laughs> I would share your concern. Yeah. I wouldn't be going anywhere near them. Um, I think we've got time for one more really quick one, if anyone's got a question. No, in that case, we're going to... Oh, can I just say oh, something yeah. as well? Um, if we have time later on, you're welcome to come and have a look at this book. So this is a new coffee table book. Um, it's not on sale. It's limited edition. But I worked with um, this photographer, Guido Mocafico. Um, uh, he's resident in Paris. Uh, but he's managed to wheedle his way into quite a few European museums and take some stunning... Uh, photographs, anyway, you have to come up and see them to appreciate them, of the best Blaschka models across Europe. And so that's just out now. I'm hoping he's going to do versions to, to go on sale. And then there's a, a book by Harvard as well about them, so you can come and have a look a bit later on. Amazing. Thank you, Miranda. Okay, and our next speaker is Annette Townsend, who's um, the Senior Conservator of Natural Sciences at National Museum Wales, and an artist and model maker in her own right, who's going to speak to us about wax botanical models. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the collection of wax models at the National Museum of Wales. Um, the National Museum of Wales was founded in 1905 and granted royal um, charter in 1907, and they decided to build a brand new fantastic building in the Civic Centre in Cardiff in 1912, um, collections were donated from um, the old Cardiff Museum, and this is the picture of the official opening of the building in 1927. Um, you can see the galleries on the side here, probably from about the 1930s. They had this fantastic new galleries that they had to fill. Um, they did have specimens, but they were trying to collect new things then. 
The keeper of botany at the time realized that fresh plant material was unsuitable for display, even though you can see some pots on the table there, they did try to have fresh specimens. And they also had um, dried herbarium specimens, but they really didn't convey what they were trying to explain to the public and they needed a new, a new way of doing this. Um, in the collections, they would have had some historic models that they've been collecting before the new museum building opened. And they were also um, donated some models from the Science Museum in London. So in our collections, we have some Brandle models. So the one in the case there is a Brandle. Typically, they would have made flowers made from paper mache that were very enlarged. But that one's actually made from um, um, a plant resin. And we also had Ziegler models as well, which were teacher models made by a company in Germany, and they were made in series. So we did have some models to start off with. But the keeper recognized that there was a need for an artist to produce botanical illustrations and wax models that were scientifically correct. So this is Evelyn Jenkins, and she got the job. Um, she was a teacher originally. She had a degree in mathematics, botany, and geology. But she lost her hearing and wasn't able to teach big classes anymore. So she applied for the job at the museum. She was a fantastic illustrator, a keen botanist. And while she worked there until 1959, she made 487 of the models that we have in our collections. And they really are fantastic. Here's some examples of her models here, um, made from the one at the bottom, 1935, and then the others, 1950s. Um, she would have gone out and collected models locally. And a lot of the fungi that she made were molded in plaster and then cast in wax. The bases are made from um, blocks of peat that she would have sealed. And also, they would have been doused in mercuric chloride as well and put um, with real foliage on. The mercuric chloride, they didn't know was dangerous at the time, but we know from her notes that, that, that they're on the model, so we know how to handle them correctly now. But her models were really fantastic. She, she had this keen interest in fungi. <coughs> and luckily for us, she left some really detailed archives. So we have, um, in our archive collections, we have lots of her sketchbooks, notebooks. She has a lot of illustrations as well. She would have worked for the department, working on their publications and making posters and things. And we can actually look at the documentation and match our models to her drawings. And in her drawing book, she would have noted the date that she collected things, where they were collected, the locality, and um, exactly how they were made. So looking back on this collection, it's really informative for us. We know exactly sort of the techniques that she used, the materials she would have used. And we found this um, newspaper article, our librarian sent this to me, saying she works wonders with wax, and there's a little section that says she's too modest. So I think she really was quite a shy person with her deafness as well, and just literally worked on her own and just sort of worked away for years and years creating these wonderful things, and we have this legacy now. Um, there was a crossover period when she retired from the museum and then this chap boy, Herbert, started working there. <coughs> and there was a year when they worked together and she would have taught him everything she knew. Um, she was a self-taught botanical model maker. She would have found out how to do things from articles from other, um, other taxidermy exhibitions or um, you know, botanical exhibitions. She would have figured out. And we have some correspondence that she was um, talking to artists in America as well. And so she taught Roy everything he knew. And um, during his time at the museum, he made 153 models. When you're looking at the collection, the, you can actually get a model out and you can almost tell who's made the different models because of their style. His work was much more fine. Um, he made a lot of vascular models. And his specialism really was fungi, so def definitely a different type of style. 
Um, this is my favourite model by him in the collection. Actually, it's my favourite model in the whole collection. It's a dandelion, and it's amazingly realistic. Um, you can see the seed head at the top is actually a dried seed head. So what the model makers did was use parts of real plants wherever they could to create that illusion of life, and then used the wax to make the, the parts that they couldn't dry easily. Um, we've actually taken this one out of the museum. We took it to the um, RHS show in Cardiff, and we had um, gardeners coming up and looking at it and thinking that it was real. And the only way they could tell it wasn't real is because it didn't have any mud on the roots. So <laughs> it really is an outstanding model. <coughs> now, Roy Herbert was quite a character, and he didn't want to tell anybody how he made his models, and he didn't leave any notes at all, apart from he gave one paper, which was written up in a book, which I found, and it has details how he made this primrose model. So we saw him making it on the slide before. But um, we can see he made a press for the leaves, so he's there with his um, wax heating pots and all his tools, um, brushing hot wax in and squashing it in between these layers of um, uh, fabric, probably silk. And then we still have those pieces in our collection now, so we have the, we have the press mould and we have these pieces on the right here, so we've got a leaf and the flower, so you can see how this model was put together. Apart from that, we don't have anything from them at all. But I have some accounts of people who worked in the department when he was there. And I think he was a really funny character. And he used quite unconventional materials. He used to put um, Canada balsam in his wax as well to, to make it more sort of flexible. And he was a heavy smoker. And I think he used to be smoking while he was working and, and dip sort of cigarette ash into the wax to change the consistency. And you can put bl a natural bloom on the wax afterwards, so you can paint it afterwards. But he used to put the cigarette ash on the top of the wax as well. So we're coming to conserve in his models. We know far less about them, and they're more complicated. <coughs> Dale Evans took over after him um, in the 1980s. They did meet each other, and I think Roy Herbert wouldn't tell her anything about how to make models, because he just wanted to keep the secret to himself. She was mainly an illustrator. She does fantastically beautiful illustrations and made less models because it wasn't really her specialism, but she did, she did make some things that were in our collections now. Um, I think he told her that model makers were too, too no, illustrators were too a penny and model makers were the real talented artists, so I don't think they got on very well at all. Um, so you can see the wax models here, the two down the bottom <coughs> are actually dried flowers and wax leaves. So again, creating the illusion of life. So if you can use dried parts, then it's, it's just easier. There's no point in making things that you can actually dry. And they also had little tricks. So they'd put little um, resin droplets of water onto some of the leaves to give that illusion. And there's a real dried butterfly and there are real dried insects on the common elder below. <coughs> so now we have an excellent resource for our displays. In the National Museum of Wales, we have... Thank you. Sorry if I had a cold for a buzz. <laughs> We've, um, yeah, we've got over a 1,000 models. I think on our register there's 1,500, but some of them don't have names anymore. Others are missing. Thank you. So it really is an excellent resource. Um, you know, with the wax models, we can portray stuff that is extinct, is out of season, is um, from Wales, from Europe, from all around. So we really have that amazing resource. Um, a third of them we have on permanent display in our natural history galleries. So we use mixed displays. So we put the models alongside real, real specimens. 
and sort of, um, you know, create these fantastic displays. And then the others are all held in storage and we use them for temporary exhibitions. So this is an example of something we've just taken off exhibition. It's Ice by Nature. And we used like a seashore case. So again, mixed specimens, fluid specimens, taxidermy, everything. Um, we actually made an exhibition called Beans on Toast, which was about food and about where your food comes from. And because we've got this amazing resource, we were just pulling out all sorts of things from our collection. So we've got carrots, we've got potatoes, we've got boiled potatoes, peeled potatoes, everything. So it really is fantastic. Um, we have lots of different types of model in the collection. We have historic models. Again, these don't actually have labels. They've lost their, their data, but I think they're brandal models from what I can see from other people's collections. Um, we have some fossil plants. So these were made by Smedley at the end of the um, 19th century. Um, they are quite strange looking. I think a lot of museums have collections like this and they don't necessarily value them. But our paleobotanists at the museum think they're wonderful because of what they were trying to portray at that time was really cutting edge science. So looking at sort of reconstructing fossil plants. We have flowering plants. Fruit and vegetables, like I said, so yeah, an excellent peach there. <laughs> uh, fungi, diseases, so again, they were used for teaching, so teaching sort of um, botanical students about different diseases of plants. Seaweeds, and this is another one of our favorites. We have a model of some cheese, <laughs> which everyone really enjoys looking at. <coughs> so when I started the museum, I really wanted to know how to make wax models. There wasn't a model maker there at the time. Roy Herbert had retired. Um, Dale Evans, I've only met once. So um, I just kind of looked at the notes and figured it out myself. So this is what, how I make mod models. I use a mix of beeswax and paraffin wax and then use artist pigments to color them. Traditionally, they would have used oil paints, but I use artist pigments because I'm also a conservator. So I try and use... Um, things that I know that won't just add in too many ingredients, so keeping the ingredients really mi minimal in my wax mixtures. So they're melted on, on, a, on a hot tray there together to create the colors. And then to create the internal structures of the plants, um, most of them are made from wire, so I use tinned copper wire. Um, you can taper the ends very carefully by dipping them in acid, so I use nitric acid, or you can sand them as well just to create very, very fine points. Because the whole thing, when you're trying to create the structure of a plant, you want it to be very strong so that it stands upright and holds the weight of the wax. But it needs to taper to a point to, to the end of the flower. So the way that you'd um, prepare the wires is you dip paintbrushes into the molten wax and then brush it along the wire and slowly build it up so it cools on the wire. And then while it's still slightly warm, you can roll it onto glass and then create a very smooth surface. You can also sand that down or use white spirit to, um, to get the imperfections out of the wax. So to make wax sheets, which you'd use for um, petals, if somebody, some of you got to have a look at my models at lunchtime, so you saw the wax sheets there. So you can dip all sorts of things in wax. You can use any material, really, that from a conservation point of view, wants something that's going to remain inert over time so it's not going to start corroding inside. So plastics, fabrics and things are fine. So I use silk or tissue paper, depending on which area of the model I'm making. <coughs> so um, if you're going to create a real flower and you can actually go and collect one, that's the easiest thing to do. It's difficult to make things just from photographs. If you're making some, something out of season, which happens a lot because that's what people want. But if you can actually do it when things are flowering, go and collect something, that's the easiest way to do it. So you literally dissect the flower and then I would store the petals 
in um, polyester sheets, so you can see them there. And then dip, color the wax the, the right color for the flower, dip the sheets into the wax to make, um, make sort of flat sheets, and then cut the templates out. So you can literally do it sort of piece by piece. Um, it's very fiddly, but if you can get a real, <laughs> if you can get a real specimen to work from, then the job is a, a heck of a lot easier. So making leaves, you can copy the surface of the leaf directly. So if you actually have the leaf there, you can just paint molten wax onto the surface of it, then fuse on a sheet of fabric and a wire at the back, and then peel it apart, and it will just pick up the patterning on the surface of the leaf. And then you can paint the detail back into it. Other ways that you can do it, depending on what type of leaf it is, you can make molds. So here I've got silicon molds with plaster supports. And they are two-piece molds, so you'd squeeze the wax together in the middle, and it would get an exact copy of the top and bottom of the leaf. Um, the one over there, are, they're poppy um, leaves, <coughs> and I've made those actually from a dried specimen. So it was a dried pressed herbarium specimen, which I literally took apart. And then I made a plaster mold of the leaves. And because there were so many different variations, I, want, I wanted lots of different types. And then with that plaster mold, you would sink that into water and um, so that it was completely wet. Just dry the surface slightly, and you can brush molten wax onto the top. Again, fuse um, a paper or silk onto the back of it, and then peel it off. And the little leaf above is what you get. And then you would work back, in, back into that with metal tools to make the, the edges of the leaf um, tapered. And then, um, as we saw, you make the wires earlier. You just attach that to the back of the leaf. You can do it while it's still in your mold so that it um, creates a really good join. And there you are. You have a um, leaf with a stem. So fusing the parts of the model together, I use a little um, Bunsen flame, and I use um, dental tools or modeling tools as well. So I heat the tool up and then um, attach the parts piece by piece. For the center of the flower, you can use a little plastic bead and just paint wax onto the top of that and sand it so it's perfectly round. And then you attach um, stamens, which you can do by dipping threads of cotton or silk into wax and um, cutting them to the right size and blobbing little bits of wax onto the end. And then attach the flower, the petals, and then work your way down the model. So you work from the top of the model down, attaching all the different parts. So those are the finished models. Those two I made. Um, there's a celandine and the creeper but buttercup. So yeah, working your way down the models, you can do the same thing by making buds, making leaves, and then attaching parts as you go all the way down. Um, the surfaces, I've used acrylic paints. Um, you can use varnishes as well, or you can just use um, sort of pigments and just brush them into the surface. Sometimes, if you've got a really complicated model and they've got hairs all over them, you have to figure out a way of doing that. So I made a poppy model, and I actually individually put the little fine wires in to make the hairs. but. That's the level of detail that's required to get them to look exactly like real plants. So, <clears throat> When I first started working at the museum, I actually started working as an illustrator, and I was working with the paleobotanists, and we were reconstructing um, um, carboniferous um, plants. So working from fossil material like these in the middle, this is um, a late carboniferous swamp forest, and the tree is called a lepidodendron. It grew to about 40 meters tall. The trunk was um, sort of two meters wide at the base. And those fossils there show parts of, the, parts of the plant. So the trunk at the bottom shows the leaf cushions that would have fallen off and left that distinct pattern. And the stigmaria root at the top, it's actually upright in that picture, but it would have gone sideways from the base of the tree like that. So we're trying to convey those sorts of um, 
tell people about the fossils and what these plants would have looked like. And it's really, you can do it in an illustration, but if you can use a model to do it, then it just sort of gives people that idea of what the scale of the things and what they would have looked like in real life. So we made wax models of them. Now you think you might have replaced wax with a um, more modern material, but the great thing about making them out of wax is the paleobotanists didn't really know what these plants looked like. So they'd say, you have to make it sort of this color and this shape, and we want the leaves to go a certain direction. And then when you made it, they'd say, actually, we don't think it really works like that. It doesn't really look right. So with wax, you can just manipulate it and change it. You can reheat it. You can bend things so that you can change that shape. So it's a direct sort of model-making material, but it's changeable as well, which makes it really brilliant. And it does have that real lifelike quality because of its translucency as well. So um, like the speakers were saying earlier about it looking very much like flesh and sort of skin, it also looks like the plant material itself. So it's, it's brilliant for that. So here are these models on display at Big Pit National Coal Mining Museum. And um, again, a mixed display. So putting them alongside the illustrations of the fossils. And, um, you know, I, don't, I think they really help sort of give that idea of what the plants look like. So they work really well. Even the smallest fossil can be brought to life. So I've worked for um, the BBC, Walking with Monsters program. And this is a, a Cooksonia plant, which is one of the earliest land plants. And it was a few millimeters high. And you're trying to explain to the public what this looked like. It's very difficult. So um, we made a reconstruction of it. And it's an enlarged model, so it's about 10 centimeters tall. And this one is a very sturdy model, so you can do this with wax as well. The center is lots of wires, very, very thick wires that are joined together and they're wrapped repeatedly with cotton so that they're not going to move about and then coated with wax. And this model went to um, America for filming, so it really stood up to the travel and everything. Um, so we, I work as a conservator. Um, I was employed first as an illustrator, and then I made models for the department. And then because of my knowledge of um, the material of the waxes and the work I'd done, I was employed to conserve the collection as well. So um, I worked with the other botanical conservator there. And when we first started, the models were kept in sort of drawers like this, traditional museum cab cabinets. And as the drawers were squeaky and they were pulled in and out and things got bumped and damaged, so um, yeah, we changed the storage. We put it on static shelving used archival packaging as well, and they're now in a store that the environmental uh, conditions are just right for them, so they're 20 degrees um, centigrade and 50% RH. And they're stored in acid-free cardboard boxes, Corex custom-made boxes, and they have plasterzoat packaging as well. So I bet the Blaschkas wish, wishes they had some plasters out when they were transporting their models because it's fantastic stuff. So I've actually brought some of my models on the train this morning and they're fine. If you pack them like this, you can transport them and it absorbs all the, the vibrations when you're moving. So it's a good way of packaging things. Um, for mounting, they would have used traditional mounts when they first made the models. So these are on boards. And we do have problems with this because some of the models where they have a wire structure they would have actually made the wires go through the board and then flare out the back, and then they would have been taped at the back. So every time you pick the board up, the whole thing moves, and models move as well, and it causes little fractures. So we transferred them onto modern um, perspex sheeting, and then we used polycarbonate rods to mount them as well. So you can bend the polycarbonate rod with heat, and then this allows us to sort of 
take the models around, get them in and out for storage, show people, put them on display as well, and we never have to handle them, so it's a really good way of, of dealing with them. <coughs> um, yeah, damage. This is interesting. Like we were saying about the Blaschkas, when, um, when they do get damaged, it's really sad, but then you can see how things are made. So this is a, an apple that we had, and it's all smashed up. But this is really interesting, because then you can see like, how things are constructed, and it's got little pieces of cotton wool and wire inside. Um, typically, the models get damaged from handling, and um, where the pieces are tied together, they would have been tied with cotton, but this is the point at which they get stressed when you move them around, so you get this sort of delamination of, of waxes between layers and on, uh, along the wires as well. And then wax picks up a lot of su surface dirt and dust, so um, you know we try and keep them in boxes all the time, and when they're on display, they're not on open display, they're behind glass as well. So um, there are a lot of sort of issues with conservation of them, really. So from my conservation work then, um, I do external contracts as well, and I was lucky enough to work for um, the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. They have this beautiful collection of orchids. They have um, 24 models of orchids made by Edie Blackman in 1893. And they, we got the job, we quoted for it, and they literally brought all the models over to, over to Cardiff. And my office was just full of orchids, and it looked amazing, because they are abso absolutely beautiful. Some of them are sort of this big, big arches with flowers on. So I got to work on that project, which was really lovely. And then I work on other model-making projects as well. I'm a conservator, but I also sort of work externally. So um, these are just a few of my other models that I've made. There's a U there, which I've got in the box. So it's really tiny, but very, very detailed. So you can have a look at that afterwards if you want. A witch hazel as well. So I've made models for the National Botanic Gardens. And then recently, I've worked for Manchester Museum and made some fungi models as well, which was... Um, a really lovely, lovely job. And then um, a common poppy. So that's for National Museum of Wales, and that's currently touring. So they've got um, yeah, World War I sort of exhibition, so the poppy model's part of that. There you go. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, Annette. Um, it's, for me, at least, it was really, really interesting to hear... Um, a conservator's perspective on objects they're actually creating with sort of like yeah, it's yeah engineered <laughs> in conservation. It's cool. Like it. Amazing. <laughs> um, we've got five minutes for questions just before a break. Does anyone have any questions? Okay. In that case, I guess. Oh, Sam at the back. Right. do you mean the way that I make things is because I know that I'm going to have to fix them in the future or somebody will? <laughs> I was curious, 
Right, well, when I'm, when I'm working as a maker, I imagine that somebody in the future will have to repair the models that I make. So I make sure that I make very detailed notes and then I keep those notes. And sometimes I even, um, like you, Eleanor was saying about having those little pieces of wax. So sometimes I attach pieces of wax or parts of like leaves or something that I've made to my records and they go in a folder and they're stored at the museum with the models. So if it ever needs to be repaired in the future, you can, you can actually see how it's made and, or you can analyze the wax. So I'm thinking like that when I'm making. Um, the lepidodendron trunk that was in sections that was the fossil plant, I actually made a little door in the back of it so that you could get open the door <laughs> and get in. So if any of those leaves got um, broken, you could fix it from the inside of the model rather than the outside. So that affect, yeah, it does affect my thinking in that way. And then it works in the other way around as well. So when I first started at the museum as a conservator, and uh, the other botanical conservator was using like a cold wax method to reattach parts of models together. And I said, well, that's crazy because you do that because of the ethics of conservation where everything has to be reversible. So you never want to attach something. You don't want to fuse a piece back together because then you've altered the state of the, of the object. So you have to do something that you can take apart again. But I said, well, you'll have a job for life because it will continue to break because the join isn't isn't solid enough to, to withstand that handling that happens when models go in and out for exhibitions. So we use um, just pure beeswax. So we just use a really pure, stable material that doesn't have any colouring in it. We make notes of where it is, but we actually fuse the models together, which is irreversible. And so that, that causes controversy in, in the terms of conservation, but you know that that's going to work. So it affects both of my roles, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. I was going to say, I could think of whole conservation departments that wish their collections were entirely made by conservators. Yeah. It would be really handy. It is unusual, yeah. Nope. Uh, does anyone else have any questions? Yeah, I was going to ask a question similar to Sam, but I think you've covered, okay. covered what... Yeah, it's really fascinating to see that sort of that crossover between, um, between creation and treatment. It's really, mm. yeah. Thank you. Quite unique. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I get a lot of them. Um, yes, I do get a lot of people that want to come in and see the collection and know about my work as well. And um, I have sort of, I do teach as well, so I get people coming to work for me, artists, and definitely people who make jewellery are very interested through sort of working with waxes and loss casting as well, and working at that very sort of small detailed level as well. So yes, it's um, yeah definitely of interest to them, yeah. And it's something I always, when I meet people, I always want to have a go at what they're doing, so. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing we've got, um, it was me that was talking to Miranda, and we've got a Blaschka collection. So because I'm a maker, and I'm looking at conserving our Blaschka models, I want to learn how they were made. So I want to learn the skill of lamp working, because that's how I understand objects, is to know exactly how they're made and what materials they're made, made from. So I want to learn that about the Blaschkas before I start conserving them. So if we do get a grant to do that, I'd, I'd want to do a little bit of making. So, yeah. 
Okay, if there's no more questions, then um, we're in time for refreshments, which Haley's going to direct us to again. And we'll come back in about half an hour, I think, or three quarters of an hour. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.